All right. So <clears throat> um, this is a break from Exodus, sort of. Okay. We are going to weave that in. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions to see how you've been paying attention. Uh, but so the genesis of what I'm going to talk about uh, is something one that's linked to things I care about a lot. So you'd hope I think I talk about something that I care about a lot. Um, but also to weave together a bit of a story here, okay? And um, <clears throat> so Kevin and I were talking after a meeting actually, and and uh, our uh, adult class where I usually meet at this time uh, is also going through Exodus. Morning, guys is also going through Exodus, and so um, we were kind of comparing notes, and we were just talking about, you know, some of the learnings and some of the themes in Exodus. And so let me just ask you that. What what do you think is the main theme um, of your study? Or has uh, Kevin told you that? Or <laughs> Jesus on every page would be a... Uh, a good way to look at it, and so that's uh, so. Uh, in a Bible study, when someone asks, you know, what's uh, you know what's it all about? Well, the answer is usually Jesus, you know, and uh, so there's jokes about that, but <clears throat> that's a good answer. Um, a little more focused answer uh, we might uh, we might pull out of some of the early chapters, and so. I'm just going to uh, invite the reading, and I've, I've distributed some cards among you, uh, those who are early arrivers. And so in the upper left-hand uh, corner is a, is a circle number. So that's the order. And so someone has card number one, and it's Exodus 5, 1 through 4. Okay, first encounter here with Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh. And so what was the request? What request were they making of Pharaoh? Let them go. Let them go. But for what reason? For what reason? To sacrifice to God. To, to go and have a feast, to make a sacrifice. So normally what would we call those things in that request? What were they wanting to do? Worship. Worship. They were wanting to worship. So, what I'm going to do uh, is build on that basic notion that in Exodus and in in all of life, all of the scriptures, all of who we are, uh, is a calling out to worship the one true God. Okay, and that is the story. Okay, and so I want to put that in the framework or a lens of missions, something I care about deeply. Um, some of you have heard me talk on that uh, on Sunday evening. And in particular, I want to talk about missions and the missional church, a church that understands missions right at their bootstraps. Now, that term, missional, I'm, I'm going to have to give a few disclaimers. Uh, it, it has some baggage. A lot of people use it differently. Um, but I think it's the most appropriate term, and I think it has a proper sense in which we can use it. And so I want to I want to unpack that uh, this morning. Uh, some use it synonymously with the seeker-sensitive church, and it's not. Uh, the problem with the seeker-sensitive movement, in my opinion, is it dumbs down the gospel. And you can relate to the culture without dumbing down the gospel. And that is really what is done in missions, okay? Um, if you go into cross-cultural missions, you must understand the culture and be able to communicate in the culture. In fact, if it's not an English-speaking country, one of the first things you're going to do is learn the language. 
And if you learn the language and the idioms, you will learn most of the culture. Things are said differently in a different language, and they have a different cultural context. Okay, so keep that, keep that thought, and we'll move along here. So, uh, for some time, a, a book by John Piper was out on the vestibule table, the title uh, was Let the Nations Be Glad. Anyone read that? Okay, it's an excellent book. I'll give you just uh, just a taste of it, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, emphasize again what I hope you, you're beginning to integrate from, from Exodus. So John Piper said in Let the Nations Be Glad, really in the opening paragraphs, the opening chapter of that book, just a quick excerpt, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. So someone has the scriptures on circle number two to read. In the prophetic scriptures and in Psalms, when you hear the prophet or the psalmist say coastlands, Philip has mentioned this in his sermons, who who are they talking about? The, the broad nation, the Gentiles. It is. Okay. I'm, I'm just trying to show you. We're in the picture and we're really the product, to some degree, <laughs> of missions. Okay. Um in fact, when Paul saw the Macedonian vision, the man from Macedonia, his intent was to go into Asia. Okay. And instead, the Spirit led him into Macedonia. And the gospel entered Europe. Now, much of the world that we're trying to reach in cross-cultural missions is in Asia. By God's providence, the gospel came into Europe. Had Paul gone the other way, as he intended to do, it, it might be a reverse story. Okay. So just some things to ponder, just a lens to look at in terms of the history of missions. Good morning. All right. So let's keep moving here. And uh, we're talking about missions. Uh, there's no handout, uh, but all your friends can catch you up. How's that? All right. So missions is more than the Great Commission. It is about the Great Commission but it is actually more than the Great Commission, at least more than most churches teach about the Great Commission. Okay, and that's what I'm trying to trying to unpack. So, as I mentioned a moment ago, some of you have heard me teach uh, on Sunday evening about uh, the Great Commission. Good morning, guys. Good morning. And uh, <clears throat> that's where we often start and end with a discussion on missions. And, and it's not a bad place, but again, I'm trying to weave a story together that, that is a little more expansive, and uh, hopefully you'll appreciate it as we, as we move along here. So let's look at the familiar version uh, of the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel. So someone has card number three. All right. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, so some of you who who have memorized the Great Commission would bore in on 18 through 20, okay, and start, you know, all authority. I backed up to verse 16, which is a kind of interesting thing, and I, for the reasons that you perhaps have already discerned, needed to do that. So first of all, you know, <clears throat> what is the setting? Well, that's in verse 16. So... Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. That's where the core of Christ's earthly ministry was. They called him back to Galilee. Okay? All right? To deliver this important final word. Okay? And uh, it was, uh, they were directed there. Okay? And what happened when they saw them? I'm going to read 17 again. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Isn't that interesting? All right. Isn't that interesting? Okay. So, um, the initial response was worship. Okay. And, you know, again, I'll just comment like this. Okay. And then, then comes the marching order. Okay. The Great Commission. All right. And... So, you know, does it does it really look like Christ was concerned about the, the, the few doubters? These these must be in the ranks of the 11. Maybe there were some go, going around. You know, the scripture is pretty silent on, but it sort of gives a sense that, eh, you know, wasn't like everyone was together on this. Okay, all right. And there were probably more than the 11, okay, but you, you're kind of scratching your head and wondering. So... Christ is not concerned about the doubters. He's given a commission. So <clears throat> you might think back other places where a, an important word is given. And I'm not going to read the passage, but you can go back and read in Isaiah 6. We're studying through Isaiah. We, 6 has been a long time ago, okay? But that's Isaiah's call. And so he had a vision of God, high and lifted up, Okay? And so, woe is me, I'm undone, okay? And then, working through that, he's worshiping. He, he falls down. He is, he is worshiping. And then a call, okay? Who will go? It's in me. So that's a common pattern. I just want to point out it's right here too, okay? All right, so what I'm, what I'm really going with then is just an understanding that the call to authentic worship is to some degree what empowers missional thinking, all right? Because that's really what we're doing when we make disciples. So <clears throat> we're going to go back to 18 to 20, the core of the commission here, and we're just going to look at it grammatically for just a moment because there's an important point, um, which I've taught in different settings here before, and I don't want to you know, make too much about it, uh, in in one sense, but um, it's it's great if you if you go back to the Greek in this instance the Koine Greek and look at the only imperative here. So we're just going to dwell on the grammatical instruction here. So it starts with this: all authority is given in heaven and earth. Okay, so there's a singular, all-inclusive affirmation. The post-resurrection Christ is saying, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. So, guess what, guys? You have a commission, and all authority has been given to me, therefore I am sending you, okay? There is a single imperative. What is the imperative in, in the Great Commission, okay? In verse 19. Yeah, some of you will say go. That's actually, yeah. Well, so the imperative is a command. You know, you say, you know what? So these guys probably know what an imperative is. I used to wear a uniform, okay. And so, um, again, a command, okay. Um, <clears throat> so I used to be able to, to to march and do all things military. Um, that was a different that was a different day. So an imperative is actually a command, okay. 
Yeah, so it really is. So the only imperative here, there's three present participles or gerunds, depending on who, what your English teacher taught you. Okay, so how many of you really like grammar? Okay, and so, diagramming sentences, good. All right. So there's really there's really only one command, and that is make disciples. The others, the other verbs here are actually present participles or gerunds. Okay, so it's going baptizing, and teaching, okay? So a little better rendering here might be, as you are going, make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things that I have taught you, all right? So that is really the imperative. That's the command. So what we're supposed to be doing is making disciples, okay? All right. So, and there's, you know, one other thing I'll point out here. There's this singular affirmation, all authority, single imperative, okay, and a singular promise. Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay? All right, now he's about to ascend, but we have the promise. We have clearly... Pentecost and all the unfolding that you see there in Acts, and we'll pick up a scripture in Acts here in a moment, you know, we are Holy Spirit empowered, okay? And in fact, should be directed, and that should frame everything we do missionally. All right, so if we're supposed to make disciples, it's probably pretty good to answer, what is a disciple? And then then how you how, how do you make one, okay? Because if you don't know what a disciple is, it's going to be hard to make one, okay? But that's the imperative. Okay, so um, uh, I've asked this question, I think, even in this group. So what is a fully functioning disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ look like? Sounds like a trick question. Sounds like a trick question. Jesus. <laughs> well, okay, sure, sure, absolutely. Correct. So I've, I've heard uh, Christian defined as little Christ. What? So if we call right, ourselves sure. Christians, sure. what we're saying is that we are following Christ, meaning right. we are little Christ. And and absolutely, and and, and of course, the, the folks in Antioch would agree with you about that. You know, the followers of the way were first called Christians in Antioch, and and today. Christian is still a good term, but it's kind of like missional, okay? It has, the culture has accommodated to Christian, and it means different things to different people, okay? All right. There is a pure sense. So a little Christ is exactly the meaning that it should have, but it's used slightly differently, okay? And we'll talk a little bit more about communicating in the culture here in just a minute. Uh, so, good answer, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to go towards a little more, I think, precise answer as we move along. So, Christ was a disciple maker. One author has said, he taught thousands, he healed hundreds, he thoroughly discipled twelve. Okay? Think about that for a moment. So, he... He wouldn't have won any awards on church growth. Okay, charts. Okay? You, you, you understand what I'm saying here? All right. So there is, there is a very intentional, very selective focus. All right. So let's pick up reading number four. Someone's got card number four. Carlos. Their nets, and he called them, and they immediately left the boat and their, and their father and followed him. 
Okay, so one version of the story, and I'm being a little flip here, but you'll pardon me for that because we're going we're gonna to bore in on this. One version of the story is here is Christ breaking up a family fishing business. That's literally what's kind of going on here, okay, because here are the principals in the company, and he's come by and said, follow me, and immediately they leave their nets and take off and leave their father standing there in one instance, okay. So they appear to be partners, okay, uh, so maybe extended family or cooperatives. But the point is here, uh, this is this is interesting. So one of the things that's instructive is to read the gospel passages in parallel. So someone has five, and we're going to get another little tidbit about the call of Peter in particular here. Hey, what, was, what was the scripture reference for four? Yeah, that's Luke five four through eleven. No, that's uh, it's Matthew. Uh, excuse me, I'm, I'm Matthew four seventeen to twenty two. Yeah, I'm 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 down here in my yeah. Yeah, excuse me. Uh, yeah, Matthew four seventeen to twenty two. Excuse me. Um, <clears throat> someone has five, and it is Luke five <laughs> four to eleven. All right, who's got that? All right, great. And when he had finished speaking, um, he said to Simon, "Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch." And Simon answered, "Master, we toil all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets." And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to the partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and they filled both of the boats, and the boats began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, uh, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. Uh, and so also James and John, the son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Uh, and Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, for now you will, you will be catching men. And when they had brought uh, their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Okay, so you see how the other gospel passage sort of flushes out this encounter. No wonder they dropped their nets and left them. Okay, so, but importantly, what what happened in P, in Peter's encounter with Christ when he saw, you know, this large catch when they had toiled all night for nothing, and Christ said, "Let your nets down again," and he brought in this tremendous catch. What was Peter's response? I understand for you. Yeah, he dropped to his knees. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. What was he doing? He understood his position. He did. He understood his position. Okay. If if I dropped on my knees and and kind of gave that sort of an accolade to you, it would be inappropriate. But here it's very appropriate. Peter is worshiping. Peter is worshiping. He's acknowledging, whew, you know, this is just completely... because So, so this is a fisherman. A good fisherman, okay, knows fishing, okay, and he's going, eh, we've worked all night and hadn't caught anything. The likelihood of, you know, having a catch when you say, you know, you see what's going on here in his mind. He he does get it. He recognizes, just as you say, but that's worship. All right, so again, I'm trying to point out here this this paradigm, what Piper is reminded of us of, is that worship is really what it's about. Okay, so let's move on. And and so what we have here is an initial call. And so we're calling fishers of men. And as you know, this intense period of discipleship, about three years of earthly ministry of our Lord, and then the culmination of that, resurrection, okay, burial, Death, burial, resurrection, ascension now in Galilee. I'll get it in the right order, all right? And so then a commission, okay? So we're, we're just kind of hitting the high points here. So there's some bookends here that are also instructive, okay? So he's calling fishers of men, and so this was the initial call. Let's go to John's Gospel, 
and look in chapter 21. Someone has card six. So these are the bookend fishing expeditions, if you will, uh, for Peter as he encounters Christ. Okay, The beginning of his time as a disciple, and then with the post-resurrection Christ, okay, back, you know, fishing. All right. Kind of a similar encounter. An incredible catch. First he didn't recognize Christ. Then, you know, verses we left out, you know, he's, you know, he's kind of stripped down and working and he kind of girds himself and swims to shore before they get the boat in because he's so anxious to get to shore. All right. And so they have, a, you know, a fish breakfast, okay, and, and then Christ begins to teach again and, and inquire of Peter. How many times did Peter deny him? How many times did he ask him, do you love me? And if you go back to the Greek, there's actually differences in the words. There's several words for love in Greek. And so we'll not go into all of that, but there is really a, a very, uh, very deep-seated meaning behind this. Okay. So this is the fisherman's bookend call. Okay. And taken together, we're going to make a few observations about disciple-making, and being a disciple. The first, we've kind of hammered on this, authentic worship precedes missional disciple-making. Okay, authentic worship. Justice Piper is reminded this, because the goal of missions is to bring others into authentic worship of the one true God. We'll just, just pick one scripture here just to show another encounter. This is Jesus with the woman at the well. Someone read uh, what's on card 7, the verse that's directed on card 7. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Okay. So that's a cross-cultural mission encounter, mid-ministry for Christ, and he's telling a Samaritan woman who is surprised that a Jew is speaking to her, and particularly a Jewish man is speaking to her, and enters into a dialogue. And we arrive at this point where she's trying to change the subject, and Christ makes this important, important declaration of truth. Okay? Time is coming and now is, you know when you worship in spirit and truth, and the Father is seeking those who will do so. Okay? All right. So, a <clears throat> couple of more sort of, sort of observations. One, authentic worship precedes any kind of commission. Another 
quick comment here, and we're going to develop some of this a bit more, and I'm trying to be mindful of the time. Cast your net where Christ directs. Okay? So what we're really saying there is disciple-making is very focused, very intentional, and under the Lord's direction. Not everyone's heart is prepared to receive the gospel. Okay? So we don't want to, you know... We we don't want so this is a this is a West Texans analogy you know some of you may understand it better than others. There's a difference between a shotgun and a rifle. <laughs> okay, we don't want a shotgun here. We want a rifle. Very selective. Okay. All right. So. <clears throat> hey, yes, sir. May I interject something real quick? Sure. Um, when when they were casting their nets over the side of the boat, at that point when they were doing that. They had no instruction from Christ yet. Christ hadn't told them to do anything or not to do anything. It wasn't until they had been fishing and toiling all night, and then he came upon them, and then he said, cast the nets on the other side of the boat. Right, right. And so I think there's traps kind of on both sides of this road. One is people get paralyzed until they hear the word of God saying, you know, because you, you don't want to do the wrong thing outside the will of God. And... The other one is, well, I don't, I don't know, so I'm just going to do something, you know. So, so I'll go back to sort of an Exodus analogy here, and you'll probably, you'll, I, I, I would agree with what you're saying. The best is usually sacrificed. Excuse me. The good is, uh, the best is usually sacrificed on the altar of the good. Okay, that's the, that's the saying. Um, and what we mean there is, um, we don't want to accept just the good. The best. Look at the sacrificial system. Lamb without spot or blemish. Those words were used of Christ. Any sacrificial animal without spot or blemish. Okay. Lots of prescriptions. So, so again, um, <clears throat> you know, there's you know, Romans 12, 1 and 2, you know, come to mind. Sit you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, you know, Holy, acceptable one of God, which is your reasonable worship, some versions, okay? Problem with living sacrifices is they crawl off the altar, okay? So, so again, all of it, you know, all of it is, is you know, is at that point. So this, this, is that, this is that point I'm trying to make. It's very selective, very intentional, Holy Spirit-directed activity we're talking about here in terms of disciple-making, Okay? All right, so let's move forward to probably the greatest missionary of all time. We could spend a whole lot of time talking about Paul and what he did and that kind of stuff, but let's just look at what Paul was telling one of his premier disciples. He had many, but probably the one that we, we see best in the pastoral epistles of Paul. So someone has uh, card eight, 2 Timothy 2.2 2. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Very good. So, how many generations of disciples are mentioned in that verse? The way I, I memorized it. The things you have heard of me among many witnesses, these things commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So, four. Paul, Timothy, what's the third? Faithful men. Faithful men. Others also. And by implication, other faithful men. So my question is, all right, was Timothy a faithful man? Absolutely. Paul had taken the measure. Was Paul a faithful missionary? Yes. All right. So what we're saying here is is a very intentional process. That's disciple-making. Okay. So the other thing I'm going to say is we're, we're, we're sort of talking about several examples here, but the general thread is, you know, the disciples Christ made directly 
Paul was a disciple born out of time, he says of himself, okay, but very much a disciple, an apostle. He makes, you know, a, a great argument for that. We understand it to be true, okay. So, so actually, it's apostle born out of time. But, but the point here then is, is we understand through the lives of these who we know to be faithful men and faithful disciples how to do it. Okay, so just one other observation about our fishermen. So, <clears throat> disciple makers may be called to unexpected or uncomfortable roles. Peter, when when he was kind of bewildered by the events, okay, he didn't really know where the train was going. What does he do? He says, eh, I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to go do something I know how to do. I'm bewildered by these events. So he goes back and he starts fishing. Okay, and Christ told him, I'm going to make you fishers of men, but in this bookend encounter, the, the final encounter that we have recorded only in John's gospel here, he's telling him to be a shepherd. Has he ever been a shepherd <laughs> his whole life? <laughs> okay, so these are metaphors, and we use them in a very comfortable way, and we understand them that way, but when they were first uttered, they were really vocational metaphors. So, you know, Peter probably knew some shepherds, and he knew he wasn't one. Are Are you with me? Right. Tend to my sheep. Tend to my lambs. That's the point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was. He was really saying. You know. Guess what. <laughs> You know, call was to be fishers of men, and and here's what that looks like. It looks more like shepherding, something you know you you're probably uncomfortable with. And and again, he'd gone back to fishing. So again, all I'm trying to say here is sometimes we're pretty uncomfortable. If if you go to a different culture, one that is doing things you don't understand very well, and you start. And, and you start trying to learn the language and the customs and so forth for the purpose of engaging people with the gospel, do you think that's a comfortable spot? Very uncomfortable spot, okay? It's a very uncomfortable spot even in our own culture. All right, so very quickly then, what does a missional, disciple-making church look like? So there's a great, there's a great summary in Acts 1-8. Someone's got number nine, and then I'm going to wind this up with a few... Uh, a few comments about a missional church. So you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Okay, very good. So, first of all, and you'll receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So, back to net casting, back to casting your net where Christ directs. Okay, so it's at the impulse of the Spirit, very selective, the rifle shot, not a shotgun blast, okay? Um, <clears throat> so there's some concentric rings here that we hear. So a missional church, and he's talking to the assembled folks, this is really the, the Great Commission passage in the book of Acts, and you shall be my witnesses, talking to the entire church, okay? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, ends of the world. Okay, so it's upward focused in terms of worship. If you're going to be moving at the impulse of the Spirit, you are worshiping. You are first worshiping. Then outward looking. Outward looking right where I live, right in my state, right in a neighboring region, extending to the end of the earth. Okay? So it's an outward, it's an out, outward um, focus, but it begins here. So what what would you do? I, I've sat on a small mission board for uh, over 15 years. So what would you do with someone who came in and said, "I want to go to India or Nepal or somewhere else in Asia, where, where our focus is," okay, and 
you ask them, you say, well, tell me how you're making disciples here. You say, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm not really doing that here. I haven't had time. I'm too busy training, you know. I want to go there and make disciples. What would you say? It doesn't make sense, does it? Okay. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, um, I'm going to wind up. So, yeah, great question. Uh, the obvious question, okay, you, you have to answer that on an individual basis because each of us has a sphere of influence. You know people I don't know. I know people you don't know. Each of us has a network of relationships. And I'll bet some of those folks do not know Christ. All right? Our role as individuals and as a church, a, a, a missional church, if you will, is to engage people in meaningful ways with the gospel. That begins with a worship experience and an understanding of where Christ is directing us. Okay. Now, I'm gonna. I'm just. I'm trying to declare my sources and and again. Um, I spent a fair amount of time looking for people who were talking. I'm interested in missions, and when this this term missional church came up, I was a little uncomfortable with it, to be honest. And that's what I said it meant when when I started off here with it. So there's a little baggage around the term missional. But what I'm going to say to you is, if you use missional in the framework of a disciple-making church, one that looks at its current environment, the same way you would look at missions overseas, cross-culturally. So, so what does a missionary have to do if they go cross-culturally to another culture? First of all, hopefully they've done what I'm about to, to unpack here locally. Okay, They've learned how to do some of these things. Okay, um, And so we send them, all right, but then they're going to have to learn the language. They're going to have to speak the language in a way where they can communicate with the people of that culture. They'll have to learn the customs and the culture. Okay, They'll probably have to find different ways to communicate, but they're going to still worship, and they're going to draw people into worship. That is really the goal of missions. Okay, So how, how do you do that? How do, how do you impactfully deliver the gospel so that people can worship the one true God through Christ okay, in another culture? Well, so here's some things, and this is what a missional church looks like. This is what a, someone who is, who is looking at disciple-making has to think about. The first thing is to discourse in the vernacular. Now, this, most of this comes from Tim Keller. I would invite you to look at several things that he's written, but probably the most comprehensive is Center Church. A little, little profile here on Keller, and I've, I've followed his ministry for some time. And I, I would have to say I don't completely agree with everything that I see, but it's an amazing story. So he's a Presbyterian minister in New York City, okay, and has Redeemer is is a church Redeemer Presbyterian in New York uh, has uh, an incredible ministry and so lots of people have looked at uh, you know how he how he has done that okay and I would say this the closer I look it's not dumbing down the gospel but it is engaging a postmodern culture okay. Here, you know, Tyler, Texas is much different. This is the buckle of the Bible belt. It's much different than New York. Some of you know that firsthand. Some of you kind of know that through the, the tube and the movies and, and so forth. But, you know, I'll tell you, it's much different. Okay, I've been there. I've been to Skyscraper National Park several times, uh, and I'm not an expert, but uh, it is much different. Okay, it's a it's a much more brusque city. Okay, but an important city. And so it's, it's, it's good to look. So discoursing in the vernacular avoids tribal language, stylized prayer, unnecessary evangelical pious jargon, and archaic language that seems to set for the culture in general an artificial spiritual tone. Okay? 
So think through, and I'm not sniping at anyone, okay? I'm just saying, hey, you know, people want to understand who you are and what you're about, and, and if you're speaking in these and thous and, 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 and some things like that, they're kind of going, not, you know, I mean, if, they, if, if they're not church broke, okay, if they haven't been inside, you know, these walls, they, that may be very uncomfortable for them. So disc, discourse in the vernacular, okay, you would do no less in a foreign country. You'd be trying to learn the language, okay, and you probably wouldn't even know what the these and thous were in another language, but you understand where, where I'm going with that. All right, enter and retell the culture stories with the gospel. In this culture, we, we don't have a complete, and this is really the criticism, and this is why the missional framework for looking at, at uh, the gospel is important. Um, we have not done for our own culture what we have done for many others, and that is to look back at our culture through a missiologic lens and say, okay, how do we, how do we understand the culture and retell the culture's stories so that they see Christ? Okay. All right. So, our our current postmodern culture is is really rooted to issues around freedom and justice or inequality. Okay, and so retelling the cultural story to show how only in Christ we can have freedom without slavery and embrace others without injustice. Being able to do that in a meaningful way. Okay. Theologically trained people for public life and vocation. Most of us are going to meet unchurched people in what we do out in public and in our work. This is the last time I was in here teaching. I was talking about a fully orbed idea of vocation. Vocation actually comes from call. And so it's no less a call in our lives than to be a pastor or be a missionary. So, in fact, we are to be a Christian, okay, a discipler, okay, right where we work, right where we live, whatever we do. Okay, that there is no there is no distinction called sacred and secular in in this notion of of vocation. Okay, all right. So uh, if you want the notes on that, uh, they're still floating around. Um, create a Christian community which is countercultural and counterintuitive. In part, that was what was so striking with Christ's um, encounter with the woman at the well. Okay. It was a countercultural, counterintuitive dialogue. Okay, she was astonished. Why are you, a Jew and a man, talking to me? Okay, all right. And so by doing that, we, we create opportunities to discourse about the gospel. Okay. Um, in, in our society, um, you know, the, the Holy Trinity is sex, money, and power. And we have to think Christianly about those issues to engage our culture. That's the unholy trinity. All right. And then on the local level, to practice Christian unity. Okay. If you're on the mission field, cross-cultural missions, it doesn't matter whose flag, whose denomination. If there's a missionary, you know, 100 miles away, you're probably going to get together for fellowship. Why? You may be the only Christians in the country. And so it does not matter what these ecclesiastical differences are. Many of them are important, but it doesn't matter. You want Christian fellowship, okay? So practicing Christian unity as much as possible on the local level just shows the world, uh, you know, that we're not a factious group of people, okay? Now, distinctives are distinctives, and we want to preserve them. I'm not trying to dumb down any of that, but I am trying to, to say that's an important message to an onlooking world. Okay, so those particular statements, framing statements, are from Keller. Uh, I like him. Uh, the more I look at what he's written and and in the ministry, the more I understand it that it probably is a a rethinking in in a missiologic framework of right where we live. So if we are to make disciples here in our culture, so we perhaps if God calls are ready to go to another culture. We've had some lab experience. We we know what it's about. We can do it. Okay. All right. So that's a bit about missions and the missional church. Um, I'm going to stop there, and many of you have asked some questions uh, or made some points as we as we were going along. 
but I'm going to I'm going to stop there and just invite your questions or comments. Going back to what you're talking about in um, under the Second Timothy passage about the you know Peter's call to be uncomfortable, um, and you know we see kind of his inadequacy and his denial of Christ. But you know you look you read into the next chapter in Acts Acts two, he brings this incredible message. You know God was faithful to to give that boldness and and ability to go and. You know, we see we, we kind of make fun of Peter throughout the Gospels as this kind of blubbering guy who uh, speaks before he thinks. He was always he was always bold in that respect, but um, you know we kind of see him as clumsy. But and then you see that that message that he brought to the Jewish people that you know repent, and it was just full of that shepherd mentality that God absolutely, was absolutely, and. And a great, great comment, Clint. I, I will say that the one thing I like about Scripture is is it tells it like it is, and that's what we would expect. And so um, part of what happens if you're going to engage someone as a disciple maker, they're going to get to know you pretty well, warts and all, okay? And And so it's life on life, okay? Really, it's life on life. And so that's really what happened is Christ, you know, poured his life into those disciples. That's really what Paul was doing as he discipled, okay? But back to Peter where you were where you were talking. It's interesting. If you go to Acts 10, you know, so Peter, strict Jew, you know, is having these visions, you know, take and eat. Oh, no, Lord, I've never touched stuff like that, you know. Never touch that. Well, so he doesn't understand that God is preparing him to receive, you know, this entourage from Cornelius. And he's going to go back and into a Gentile home. First thing he says is, you know what? I'm pretty uncomfortable being here. You know that I, as a Jew, I shouldn't even be here. That's what. That's how he opens his uh, greeting to this household. Well, you know, that's probably not the the you know the most polite thing to say. I'm I'm, I'm using culture, our cultural language, but just kind of think that one through. So you do see Peter struggling at many at many junctures with okay. This is what I've been called to do, you know, but I'm just a little uncomfortable. Now, what I'm I'm saying, I think if you're if you're thinking that you know the track of disciple making is going to be comfortable, you 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 know rethink that one. Okay, it's probably going to be uh, marked by some real uncomfortable moments, but those are those are incredible learnings. Okay. Any other comments? I'm kind of looking. It's about 10.05. I want to get us out in time to find our favorite seat. And uh, Okay. All right. Well, um, I, what I will do is I've, I've promised... Um, um, I've promised... Um,